Professor Collier will come and read the scripture this morning. It's a familiar passage that I'll be preaching on. It's an extended passage, and I'd encourage you to sit back and listen to it as as a child would listen to a story that they've never heard. Hear it with fresh ears this morning. Professor Collier. This morning's scripture is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into, into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.' for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, not come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meantime, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, the disciples therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Try to imagine what life was like for this woman in the Samaritan village. From the Jewish point of view, a, a village of half-breeds. People who have been left behind, not deemed worthy to take away in the deportations. They'd intermarried. They had a little bit of a strange theology. They thought you should worship where they were rather than in Jerusalem. They focused on the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. They didn't quite believe in the Messiah the way the Jews did. They thought of just a prophet, somewhat like Moses, that would come. The Jews literally would spit on the ground if they would say the word Samaritan, and no Jew ever crossed over into Samaria. 
And so it's odd that the scripture says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. There was Galilee in the north, there was Judea in the south, and Samaria was right in the center, and the Jews would go around it, up the Jordan. So for the scriptures to say Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's, it's just not right. If you look at it from the point of view of how people traveled in those days, they always went around Samaria. But he had to for another reason. He had to because it was in his nature to cross boundaries. This woman woke up that morning. She'd had rather a spotted life, you might say. Five husbands and the one she's living with now, not her husband. Her significant other, we would say today. Her live-in. She goes out to draw some water. Some have conjectured it was in the heat of the day, and she came out at a time when uh, all the other women wouldn't be there. It sort of depends how you translate or interpret the sixth hour. In either case, she's certainly out there alone. There's no one else there, regardless of the exact hour. She's alone. She's clearly come at a time when the other women aren't there. Maybe not out of timidity. In fact, the more I've been studying this passage, I've always thought of her as being timid and, and ashamed. And the more I read this and the more I immersed myself in it and had some conversations this week with, with a professor here from our RS department, Dr. Gundry, about this passage, it, it opened some new thoughts to me. The more you immerse yourself in the passage, she seems pretty brash. She's out there alone, to be sure, but she dices it up with this Jewish man. One scholar says she was mincing and coy. And Lightfoot said there was a certain light grace to her repartee with, with Jesus. She may have been ashamed at some deep level, but to have gone through five husbands and to be living with another who isn't your own in a small village... Tells me maybe she wasn't so ashamed, at least at the external level. The Jews were allowed to have up to three marriages. If the Samaritans followed anything like that, she was way over her limit. But Jesus, it said, had to go to Samaria. And he sent the disciples off to get some food in the village. And he sat down by this well a hundred feet deep. One uh, passage says he sat on the well. And this woman comes along with her water pot, carrying it on her head as they do in the Middle East and in many Asian countries to this day. And Jesus crossed the boundary. He not only crossed the boundary into Samaria, and I'm sure that his disciples were thinking, you want to go in there? Because to step foot in Samaria meant you were ritually unclean. Sort of a religious version of cooties. He crossed the boundary into Samaria. He crossed the boundary to speak to a woman. This woman comes up. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, we're told. And men in those days, in private settings like this, where there was not any, any reason and they were not family, would never have an interchange with a woman. And yet he asks her for a drink. 
He crosses the boundary of male and female, something we need to do more today with dignity. And he crosses the boundary between good reputation and bad reputation. Some have conjectured that it was uh, his omniscience that gave him the insights into this woman's life, and that certainly could be. I'm not sure that that's the only way to read it. I think that it was fairly obvious she was out there alone. It may have been obvious in her attitude. But in either case, Jesus speaks to her. You see, it's a microcosm of the incarnation right here. Paul puts it this way. Jesus, who'd always been God by nature, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage, being born a man, living a life of utter obedience, even to the point of death, the death of a common criminal. You see, that's Jesus' way. He's always crossing boundaries. He was in heaven, perfectly comfortable in his love for the Father and the Spirit and the community that they enjoyed together. But he crossed a boundary. He had to because he had something for us. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. Do you remember the generosity of Jesus Christ, the Lord of us all? He was rich. Yet he became poor for your sakes, so that his poverty might make you rich. There he is again, crossing boundaries, coming from the place where he had everything, where there's nothing but the Father's will being done, where love is the language of life, and he sets that aside and comes here and takes on a life of poverty, not just physical poverty, but living in a world full of hate and prejudice and racism, sexism, Self-centeredness, distrust, anxiety, war. He became poor for your sakes, so that in his poverty you might be made rich. Or Luke puts it this way, wouldn't, in, in, from the mouth of Jesus, wouldn't any man among you who owned a hundred sheep and lost one of them leave the ninety-nine to themselves in the open and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? Jesus had to go into Samaria. He crossed that boundary. But he doesn't just cross the boundary to cross it. You know, sometimes I wonder about our mission trips. And the context of this sermon is in the context of three sermons. Dr. Barkat talked to us about the, the boundaryless world and the relevance of Jesus Christ in a boundaryless world. On Wednesday, uh, Dean Hirsch, the president of World Vision, uh, without a doubt, the, the most um, well-known uh, organization of relief in the world, perhaps other than the Red Cross. He'll be speaking to us about this as well. How do we cross boundaries in the 20th century to share the good news of Jesus Christ? And my suggestion this morning is that we ought to do it somewhat like Jesus did. That's probably not a rare thought. But it's amazing how seldom it seems to be done. I wonder about some of our mission trips, frankly, where it seems that we're crossing boundaries just to cross boundaries. My, my son calls it Christian tourism, where we all get together as North Americans and we go to some poor third world country and here we have the truth and then we get in an air-conditioned bus and drive around and see the monuments. 
That isn't quite how Jesus did it. He crossed the boundaries in order to make an offer. But he leads the woman gently and creatively. He says, give me a drink. Even that was creative. It doesn't sound like it now. I remember when I stopped to help a man on the side of the road, my wife made me do it. It was raining, and she's very compassionate, and I was in a hurry. But she said, Bart, we've got to stop, and my son was in the back, so I had to be a good example. So we got off. We came back around. I'm thinking, it's pouring rain. I get off. I said, oh, no. I get over, and it's a Hispanic man who speaks no English. My Spanish at that time was worse than it is now, and... But I could mutter a little, and we kind of fixed his, tried to fix his car, which was a real joke, me helping somebody fix a car. And uh, we got back, so we took him in the car, and we took him to a place to call. And, and, uh, and then it didn't look like that was going to work out, so, so my wife said, well, just tell him he can come to our house and you know, spend the night. And so, so I told him that. And, uh, and he looked at me, and he said, in Spanish, he said, why are you doing this? And uh, I said, well, I wanted to say my wife made me, but, uh, you know, I decided to get theological, you know. And so I told him something about Jesus. And, and he says, you know, where I'm from in south central Los Angeles, in a portion of south central Los Angeles, this is what he said to me. He said, I've been taught to hate you. And I thought, well, you don't have to stay in my house, you know. No, I didn't. I didn't. Well, I did think that, actually, but I didn't say it. And, and we talked about, and it was interesting that just a simple gesture would amaze him. That's what Jesus did with the woman. He said, give me a drink. And she said, what? Are you a Jew and a male asking me, a Samaritan and a woman, to give you a drink? And then he says, if only you recognize God's gift and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him instead, and he would have given you living water. Now, there's a strange response. The Samaritans taught that living water, that true life came from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Here's this Jewish man. Now she's saying, maybe a rabbi. And he's going to tell me about his Jewish version of living water. But he touched something inside her because she kept going with the conversation. He touched the fact that she had a deep thirst. You don't go through five men and on your six without a deep thirst for some kind of intimacy that really brings what you're looking for, which is dignity and love. Then she gets theological and says, Surely you don't pretend to be greater than our ancestor Jacob. I think this is John's way of being a bit ironic. She's standing before the person who made the universe, and she's saying, Now surely you don't think you're better than Jacob who gave us this well. And John is, in a sense, putting a little smile face there. Like, well, just wait. Everyone who drinks this water, Jesus says, will be thirsty again. Boy, she knew that too. She'd gone to one man, another, 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 and another to satisfy her thirst, and it never was. But whoever drinks the water I shall give him shall never be thirsty. Rather, the water I shall give him will become within him a fountain of water, leaping up into eternal life, springing up is the word. 
It's the word they use of, of, of beings, of live beings who would jump up in joy. It's used of Samson and David in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. It says it would leap up within them. And so now he's taking water, an inanimate object, and he's personifying and he's saying, it'll become a spring that'll leap up like a being inside of you. One of the early church fathers said this about it, as a fountain of living water from God has this our Christ gushed forth. Jesus is saying to this woman, if you knew who it was, if you knew the gift I had to give you, you wouldn't be looking at this cistern here, this well of dead water. I would give you a fountain of living water. Well, that got her. She said, sir, give me some of this water. Now, note the transition in her view already. First it was, you're a man, you're a Jew, now it's sir. It's interesting. Her view is changing slowly, gently, as Jesus leads her. So he crossed the boundary to make her an offer. She takes him up on the offer at a pretty literal level. She says, give me some of this water. And then he crosses another boundary to confront her openly yet creatively about her own life. She says, I, I want this water. And he says, okay, well, why don't you go get your husband and then come on back here? The implication is, and then I'll give both of you the water. <laughs> and she does what we do. Have you ever been caught in a lie? I know, I know you don't lie, but I have, and, and I've been caught in them by my children. That's the worst. You know, it's not like a really bad lie, just kind of a small shading of the truth or leaving out of something that they were really asking. And then they nail you with a question and you realize they've seen through it. Well, when that happens to me, I hedge my bet. I don't lie about the fact that I was lying. I just don't tell the whole truth about the lie. And that's what she did. She said, he says, go get your husband. And she really doesn't lie. She says, I have no husband. That's, that's true, actually. What she's leaving out is the whole truth that she's had five and the man she's living with isn't a husband, isn't her husband at least. She does what I do. She hedges her bets. And then I love Jesus' response. I love the way Dr. Brown translates this. She says, I have no husband. So he's supposed to think she's a widow and feel sorry for her. Right you are in claiming to have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. Oh, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. There you have really told the truth. There you have told the truth. That there's a lightness and a warmth even to his confrontation. It's a very creative way to do it. It's a little bit sarcastic, but with the warmth. But a cutting and devastating statement in terms of its validity. And notice that he keeps addressing her thirst. He keeps saying, what is it you really want? It hits me that we're being told now that we live in a generation of postmodernism. I'm still trying to understand it, to be honest with you. Then I realize that you're not supposed to understand it. When I watch MTV, I keep saying that, but it doesn't, I mean, that video didn't say anything. I mean, the, these pictures and these words, and it didn't go anywhere. And I've got a friend who's an editor of uh, 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 
probably the largest postmodern magazine in Europe. And he keeps telling me when he's over here, he keeps going, that's the point, Bart. It doesn't make sense because life doesn't make sense. If life doesn't make sense, then sin doesn't make sense. If sin doesn't make sense, then you can do whatever you want and not feel guilty. And I have many conservative religious friends who say, no, Bart, they really do feel guilty when they sin down deep. I don't think so. I think that was true 15 years ago. I have people always now in counseling who are doing things they should feel guilty about, and they don't. The interesting thing is they're not doing some things that they ought to be doing as well. And they don't feel guilty about that. And they feel guilty about some things that they shouldn't have to feel guilty about. It's very messed up. This woman apparently, on the external level, did not feel very guilty about going through five men and on her sixth. And I notice in this generation, we have a lot of people, Christian people, right here at this college, who don't feel guilty about premarital intercourse, for example. And because they don't feel guilty, they think it's not a sin. It could just be that your culture has gone so far down the tubes that it doesn't recognize it. And yet, isn't it interesting that Jesus, in this entire passage, never mentions sin, never mentions repentance. In fact, it may be that in John, he never does mention repentance. I've got to check on that this week. I haven't had time. I know it doesn't do it hardly at all, if at all. Jesus frames it in a very creative way. He says, you don't have life. I'm offering life. You've tried this other stuff, and it's not bringing you life. Let me give you life. He doesn't say, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And, you know, sin separates you from God. And I'm going to die in about a year here. And then we're going to pay for your sins. And so if you'll put your trust in me. Now, all of those things are true. I'm not laughing at the truths of those statements. I'm laughing at the fact that we are so uncreative in the way we present the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he has to offer. John in his gospel does it very differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are always talking about repentance. And who are always talking about the kingdom. John never talks about repentance and never talks about the kingdom. John talks about trusting Jesus, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. Although they demonstrate it throughout his actions. There's an incredible creativity. We live in, we're in a college. You're supposed to be being taught to be creative and thoughtful and engaging. That's why you're reading philosophy. That's why you're reading great literature. That's why we're trying to stretch your minds. Let's take some of that creativity and put it into what we call missions. I think we should rethink the whole name myself. And let's do it the way Jesus did it. Let's cross boundaries. Let's lead gently. Let's make offers. Let's confront openly, but creatively. And then she says, Lord, I see you are a prophet. Notice she went from a man, a Jew, to sir, to Lord. Probably not the way we use the word, but as a very respectful title at least. And then she says, I see you're a prophet. Her view is growing. And then she deflects it again. And she says, you know, we, we heard in John 3 that people who are living differently than God would have them don't want to come to the light because they don't want to be exposed. And now is a critical moment for this woman. 
Raymond Brown puts it this woman way. The woman looks to the light, although she would divert the rays away from her life to something less personal. Yet in broaching the topic of worship, she's beginning to hesitantly think on a spiritual level, although there's still much earthly about her concepts. She has to decide, will she walk into the light of Jesus Christ, a man who knows everything about her? And they enter this discussion about spirit and truth, worthy of an entire sermon. But let me mention one thing. I, I don't think I had heard this in my own ears this way, but now that I think about it, I have heard it preached on where it's taught that spirit and truth means inwardness and sincerity. Uh, worship in the spirit would be something that's really emotive. And, and, and worship in truth would be that you do it truly, very sincerely. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's very clear from the context. It's very clear from the grammar. He's saying that true worship is worship in the person of the Holy Spirit. The gift, in fact, which he is going to offer this woman. That would spring up inside. It's, it's a unity with God's purposes. It's, it's a, it's a worship of God in a way that would please God because it is unified with the way He sees things. And in truth is not in sincerity. It's in the truth, which is Jesus Christ. He says later, I am the truth. And it is all of God's truth. Once again, at a place like Westmont, we should be learning to worship with all of our minds, and most especially. And then she gets almost to the edge of the cliff. She says, I know there's a Messiah coming. Now she uses the Jewish term for Messiah rather than just prophet. And he will announce all things to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you, I am he. He's never told the Jews, interestingly, this. He goes outside his own country and he lets her know. I am he. Ego eimi. The same words that mean Yahweh in the Old Testament. Perhaps there's a hint of that here in the pen of John. That he's claiming the full truth of who he is. Well, then the disciples bumble in. John set the stage beautifully. It's amazing how many times Jesus' followers bumble in and mess up what he's been doing so beautifully. It says they're astonished. It's interesting. They're, they're astonished not that he's talking to a Samaritan, but that he's talking to a woman. And John uses the tense that, that gives you the sense that they, they were in a prolonged way astonished at this. They were muttering about it. And then Jesus uses it to teach them something. He says, don't you have a saying, four more months and the harvest will be here? I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. And actually, this is probably the time of year when the fields were ripe. And so they're all looking going, yeah, boy, they're ripe unto harvest. And just about that time, a whole town full of Samaritan half-breed, theologically broken people are coming out following this woman to see the man who told her everything she'd ever done. And they look out, these Jewish men, and see a town of Samaritans. And they're saying, oh, no. And he says, open your eyes. The fields are white unto harvest. And you heard the rest. The people say, we believed on the strength of the woman's word. They begged him to stay with them. And now they say, 
No longer is our faith dependent on your story, they say to the woman. For we've heard ourselves and we know that this is really the Savior of the world. No longer is our faith dependent on your story. Well, let me ask this question in closing. Is your faith dependent on someone else's story? Maybe your parents, maybe your youth pastor, maybe your professor, maybe the chaplains. Is your faith dependent on somebody else's first-hand experience of God, or have you experienced Him as living water? Have you experienced Him as a fountain that flows up from within? Jesus crosses boundaries, do we? Jesus crosses boundaries to make an offer of Himself and the Spirit and His revelation of truth, do we? Jesus leads gently, do we? Jesus confronts openly but very creatively, do we? Jesus expands everybody's horizons, the woman's, the disciples, the townspeople's. He expands everybody's horizons, do we? And Jesus must be found firsthand. Have we found him firsthand? When we do, and to the depth we go, we will experience Jesus Christ as a fountain flowing up from within us. Let me invite the chamber singers to come up for our closing piece, which is a very appropriate piece to close off this. It might have been the piece that the Samaritan woman would have sung. It might have been the piece that the Samaritan woman would have sung if, she, if this had been her style of, of music and worship. Because as she met Jesus Christ, she was astonished at his knowledge of her. And she spontaneously wanted her friends, and even her enemies it looks like, the entire village, to meet him and experience him. May our work of mission be a crossing of boundaries that is, cre- that is as creative as his was. Now may the grace of God, which is active, which crosses boundaries, which is personal, dignifying, creative, and truth-telling, infect us with the love of Christ and lead us to the Father, to one another, and to every person we meet in a spontaneous expansion of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. Amen. You're dismissed.